This episode is brought to you by Murrinjai Water Drilling, a family-owned and operated team of fully licensed, insured and experienced drillers in the construction, mining and water services. They are licensed to drill and service in Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia. They ensure all water bores are installed correctly and professionally first time, every time. Learn more at murrinjaiwaterdrilling.com.au or find them on Facebook. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Of all the jobs Libby Finlayson imagined herself doing, divorce coach was not on the list. Growing up on a sheep station in the isolated goldfields region of Western Australia, Libby developed an affinity for horses, livestock and all things to do with the bush. It's no surprise that she ended up running a farm with her husband and young family. But sometimes life has other plans. I want a divorce. Those four words spoken by her husband changed Libby's life irrevocably, and in this episode we are truly privileged to hear Libby speak about it with such candour. We explore the differences between urban and rural divorces, how Libby's upbringing influenced her recovery, and how she rebuilt her life and found a whole new career. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to recommend another podcast series to you. One where I first heard Libby's story. It's called Courage Unraveled and it's produced in Western Australia. I'll pop a link in the show notes, so make sure you go and check it out. Now, to start our episode, I asked Libby to go back the very beginning. So I had two brothers and we're surrounded by boys a lot. I was a real tomboy, much to my mum's disgrace. So she was always wanting to me wear skirts and look pretty and all I wanted to do was get into boots and jeans and be out there. I was really good at kicking a football as a kid and I um I just wanted to be out there. I wanted to do everything the boys did. I was I was probably more in love with the station life than my brothers were. You know, it's what I wanted to do. When as a kid, I just wanted to grow up and be on the station, and work on the station. That's all I ever wanted to do. So it was, um, yeah, I was a real tomboy, and I just hated being dressed up as a girl. <laughs> 
Oh, what's the age difference there? Because in my mind, I'm picturing you as the baby of the family. No, I'm the middle child, the apparently middle difficult one. So, um, but I was the only girl, so I figured myself not difficult because I didn't, you know, I wasn't the middle one trying to get the attention maybe because I had it because I was the only girl. I don't know. Um, but I was, yeah, I was definitely, um, the, my older brother's two years and my younger brother's three years younger than me. So it's the same as my kids now, same difference. And were age. they happy to let you hang out with them or did you end up spending a bit of time on your own, like you said, walking around and just entertaining no, yourself? we all hung out together a lot. We did. I mean, they fought a lot with each other and I was always like the piggy in the middle. But we did. We hung out a lot. Yeah. And my cousins were down the road, so they were only sort of half-hour drive. And so we used to do a lot of swap-overs and we hung out with our cousins a lot as well. So we weren't always just on our own. And we always had workers around. We used to follow them around and do things, you know. So we were never lonely. I didn't, I never, I was never lonely. I've never, I've never found myself lonely when I'm out, when I'm in the outback, you know. I know you had your brothers on the station with you and cousins not that far away. I was actually quite surprised just then when you said they're only half an hour away, knowing how remote you, you lived. But you're fairly outnumbered with adults and that's something a lot of station kids uh, – station kids are kind of a different breed because they spend so much time with adults. How yeah. did that uh, impact you, do you think? I don't – that's a really good question because I've never thought about that before and I, I don't really know. All I know is that the adults worked, you know, so there was always work to be done and they were always off doing something and we used to just go with them and then – it just became embedded that that's what you do. They were just people that were there, I suppose. I mean, we had governesses as well. I felt sorry for them because we used to run away all the time. Every time mum, mum went to town, we'd run away from the governess. We'd go and hide and like I'd get on my horse and take off and my brothers would go and hide on the roof and mum would get back from town and the governess would be crying and we'd be gone and <laughs> it's so funny. So it was one of those upbringings, obviously, that, you know, you just – it was it was so normal for me that I, I think it was just – I mean, I get on well with older people. I don't know whether that's come from that. And so you said you possibly even love station life more than your brothers. Was that what you wanted to do when you grew up then? Oh, definitely, yep. I wanted to go home as soon as I left school. That's what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, we sold the station for very good reason uh, in my last year of school. Um, so when I was at boarding school in year 12 – Mum and Dad sold the station and they moved to Kalgoorlie for a while and that really hit me hard. I was um, very devastated about leaving. I was super homesick about leaving and I think that's what inspired me to then go and work on other stations and I was like, okay, well, I've got to go and work on other stations now and 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 do what I love elsewhere and get the experience and I really wanted to work with cattle and because I was such a horse lover, you know, cattle and horses go together. So for me it was a win-win, wasn't it, going to a cattle station. So... I wanted to go and do that, so I did. So what was it like going up to the Kimberley? Oh, my God, it was fabulous. I love the Kimberley. Absolutely love it. It was just the most beautiful place. And as you, as I said before, you know, I just am so in love with nature and, and, and animals and everything. And it was just so – it was just the most amazing place. And I, I didn't realise how amazing it was. And back then the touristy thing wasn't as big as it is now. You didn't have Instagram and all these photos for people to see what it was like. So I didn't – I heard about gorges, but I didn't know what they looked like. And so for me, it was just this, the, the bird life. I mean, absolutely amazing. I was just in awe. I just loved it. And just the vastness with the, with the, the big plains and the, and the, um, big mobs of cattle. And 
yeah, it was just, yeah, it was just completely different to, to our station. Um, we had red dirt and mulga, um, you know, up there it was like black dirt and bio trees, you know, it was, it was completely different. The big rivers were amazing. They, they really captured me. Yeah. I'm guessing you had a fair few adventures while you're up there. Are there any that come to mind? When I got my, um, truck license. When I got my truck license up there, I was working on a station and my boss, I've been driving the truck anyway for him, you know, for a few months or whatever since I got there. And he was like, right, about time you get your license because this is really annoying that you can't go out on the, uh, on the main road. So what he did is he rang up the copper in town and said, she's coming in to get a license. He said, no worries. So he drove, I drove the ute, he drove the truck. He drove the truck, the ute back to, from Fitzroy Crossing back to the station and just left me in the truck there. We had a horse on the back that was pretty much wild and the dog in the front. And so <laughs> the dog and the horse, the copper jumped in. We went for a drive around town. He made me reverse into some gates and he said, righto, there's your licence. And I went off and delivered the horse to the next station. <laughs> so it was, it was not like, you know, nowadays all I did was do one lap around town in the truck with a horse and everything on there because he knew that I wasn't going back home. He knew I was going, the copper knew I was going off to deliver this horse to another station. So he gave my licence and off I went. So, and that brings me back to my, um, the first time I drove a car as a kid back at home on the station at Leonora. My dad put me, we had a little yellow Suzuki and my dad put me in it once I was big enough to reach the, the pedals and the steering wheel could see over it. And, you know, I've been sitting on his lap for a few years, so it was like time to drive. And he pointed me down the airstrip and he just said, drive to the end of the airstrip, turn around and come back. And I remember peering over the steering wheel, trying to change gears. I don't think I got out a second. Probably revved the shit out of this thing all the way up the airstrip, going about 20 k's an hour. <laughs> and then turned around and came back. I was so proud of myself. I must have been about 10. I don't know. I was so proud of myself. How old were you at the time, sorry? I think I was about, I'm guessing I was about 10. I don't know, 10 or 11. Old enough to be able to get my feet on the pedals. It was only a little Suzuki, those little two-seater Suzukis with all the dogs and everything on the back and we used to drive around. And another story, I've got a lot of driving stories actually, another story, and I can't remember whether this was, I think it was me and my older brother, we had a little a white V-dub, little white V-dub that was my grandma's. And us kids used to drive it everywhere. And my brother used to drive it and Bobsy, my younger little brother, who was like two, and, and I would be sitting in the passenger seat and we'd be driving around, you know, as you do on stations, so much safety. And this one time I got in there and for some reason it, it was in gear or something. I don't, I can't remember what happened. And so I was taking off down the, down the paddock. And Dad was running after me because I was heading straight for the windmill. Oh, no. And I don't know if it was me, actually. It was my brother. I actually can't remember who was driving. But there's this dad, – Dad tells the story really well and going straight for this windmill and, like, and there's Dad running next to it trying to, trying to turn, the, <laughs> turn the key off or do something. And I'm just sitting there, or my brother, one of us, was just sitting there, happy as Larry, not even having any idea what was going on. And it was the only standing thing in the paddock was this windmill and we're heading straight for it. <laughs> I'm just wondering if he's like, oh, no, my kid's in a vehicle that may be in a collision or if he's like, oh, no, something's going to hit my windmill and I'm going to have to fix it. I think it was a bit of both, yeah, because it was the windmill that supplied the water to the house. So I'm guessing I'm <laughs> guessing he was thinking both. <laughs> oh, it sounds like um, between that, those driving experiences and getting a licence, like there's no kind of babying you with anything or even, even I guess the – 
I'm going to use air quotes here, the normal level of like guidance in a way, like it's kind of a here, have a go at it and good luck. Like you, you step, sink or swim really. Yeah. Well, I basically had to teach myself how to ride a horse um, because, you know, dad wasn't very good at teaching me how to ride the horse and we had a, we had a, um, a Jillaroo and she was a good rider and she helped me. But by, by the time she got around to helping me, I was already riding around. Now, I remember dad bought a horse for me because we had a couple of old horses on the station, but by then we were all using motorbikes, so we didn't have many. Um, and so when he bought me my own horse, he stuck me on it and we just went out in the paddock and the horse was obviously heading back for home, which is south of Perth somewhere. And I'm just sitting on this horse with the other horses just following. And this mare, she was on a, she was on her way and she was just walking, but I didn't know how to ride and we were gone just out in the middle paddock. And he saw me leave and he was like, I suppose I better go out and see where she is because she didn't come back. We're right down the end of the paddock. It's standing at a fence because she couldn't get home, like five k's away, you know, <laughs> trying to get back home. And I suppose you just have to, you know, we baby our children so much now and our parents didn't baby us. We just, you just did stuff. You just learned how to do it and you figured it out for yourself. And, and I was a shit rider because I didn't know how, to, I didn't know horsemanship. I was the worst rider. I still only the horse only horses I ever saw ridden were in races. So I thought you had to yank on their mouth the whole time you rode them. My poor horse, you know. Now I don't touch her mouth. <laughs> you know, that's completely different. Different. So then I had to learn that. So when I, as I got older and I started learning horsemanship, I um I really realised that my horse didn't like me, and that devastated me because I loved my horse so much. And so I I knew there was a better way, and so I started researching myself and learning horsemanship. And so now. I mean, I've still got so much to learn. You never stop learning horsemanship, but now I'm such a better horse person. Did you think you still wanted to work on stations forever at that stage? Like, you know, as a kid, you said that was kind of, I guess, I, the I goal. Did. I did. I did always want to go back. So when I left the Kimberleys, I went mining, no, left North Queensland, and then I went mining for a year or so, a couple of years, because I wanted to save money because I wanted to travel overseas. And I knew that working on a cattle station, God bless the money was shit. So, you know, you don't, you don't earn enough. We were getting paid like 200 bucks a week back then. You know, it was, um, and so I wanted to save money. So I went mining for a while and that was, that was my goal. I was like, right, we'll have to go mining. So I did. I went mining. And so then I was like, now I want to go traveling. So I went traveling. And so when I came back from traveling, that's when I was stuck because I had all these goals. I wanted to work on cattle stations. I wanted to go to, to the mining industry to see what it was like and to earn money. And I wanted to go traveling. I came back from traveling. And I probably wasn't ready to be back from travelling. I think I wanted to go back and go do more. But I'd run out of money and, you know, you get pressure from family and friends and whatever and it was like get a real job and blah, blah, blah. And and God bless my parents. I love them dearly. But they discouraged me greatly from, from going up north or following my real dreams. And so it was kind of it was kind of that I better get a real job situation. And I was a bit lost there for a while. I did a photography course, which I never finished, and I did – this and I did that and I was like I was trying to figure out where I could fit in to to the agricultural industry without going and being a ringer on a station um even though that's what I loved so I I went to Marcus Oldham for a year and I studied agribusiness and I did an agribusiness course at Marcus Oldham and I had the best time (laughs) it's just one big party and it was fabulous but but by then I'd already met my husband and we were together, so I went over there and I did that, and he was a farmer. So when I came back, I moved straight back onto the farm and lived with him. And I, I worked in the artificial insemination industry in, in sheep, believe it or not, for a while. 
And so I did that. So all these experiences, oh, God, I've done a lot, haven't I? And so I did that. And then eventually my husband was like, well, we need you here. And I was like, well, that's great. So I then started working on the farm and then we got married and had kids. And so then I was all – so the, the best thing was I was still in agriculture and I was still farming. It was just a different form of farming. And we had the most beautiful farm and I'm, I'm so blessed that I got to live there. It was just – beautiful and it was in Williams which is only two hours from Perth we have Williams has got a fabulous social network social life it's a fabulous town I absolutely love it and so I was there for 10 years I think I was there for and yeah it was I absolutely loved it what was your so we're going to get to that part of the story in just a mm. moment before things changed as I'm sure people have just picked up on because you're not yeah. there anymore what was life like and what was I suppose, your vision and your plan for life? It's, it's a good question because I, I think my vision at that stage was, right, we're farming, this is what we're doing, you know, it's his family farm but I'm now a part of it, we're going to build this together, you know, slowly building the farm as his parents move off, we take over, that sort of thing. And so my vision was that I was going to be a farmer and our kids were going to be brought up on a farm and I also wanted to be a horse trainer. I wanted to do more training of horses and incorporate that once I had little kids at the time. But as the kids were getting older, I was like, right, once my youngest is at school, I'll start taking on a few horses and starting them for people or, you know, re-educating a horse or whatever. And so that was one of my dreams. And my other one was because we had this farm, my mother-in-law had this beautiful garden and then I took it over and I'm a garden lover. I'm, a, I'm actually a horticulturalist as well. I didn't tell you that, did I? <laughs> so, you know, so, I feel like it's a hat. You just keep pulling out all these little stuff out. Yeah. And so I was. My plan was to put this garden into open garden schemes in like five or ten years or whatever, five years when the kids were a little bit older, so that I had the time because I just expanded her garden. So my mother-in-law and I had a really close relationship, and we we both loved this garden. We had a grass tennis court and beautiful cottage garden around the farm. We had lots of water, so we were able to do that where we're living. And so I'd, I had a lot of dreams that, yeah, we were going to be farming and expanding and farming and the kids were going to be schooled like we were schooled, off, you know, country kids growing up in the country and then going to boarding school, which I think is a fabulous opportunity for them. And, yeah, that was that was kind of my dream, you know, to farm with my husband and, and to do that and I was happy, yeah. You mentioned just before that when you came back from that last overseas trip, you were a bit lost and not sure what to do, where to go, like where you kind of fit in. Did you feel once you kind of were married with kids on the farm that you'd found like your spot and you're like, okay, this is, this is home, like this is where it's all kind of been leading to? I think so. As my, I did miss station life, but farm life was just as fabulous. I loved it. Yep. So we'll get to, I suppose, the, the pointy end of it now. Yeah. Can you talk to me about what led to you leaving the farm? So I had to leave the farm because we got divorced. And for me, and I think this story, and this is my story, it's not my ex-husband's story. For me, it was a shock divorce. So it was very um, quick. It was one of those ones where him and I, we got on so well, you know, like, so no one saw it coming. I didn't see it coming. No one in our family saw it coming. None of our friends saw it coming. We got on so well. Well, I thought we got on so well, you know, we, we did get on well. But I think what happened, if I look back at the breakdown of the marriage, people change and, and he was changing in a way that I wasn't, I suppose. 
you know, I, I probably changed. And so I suppose whatever it was that led him to change his mind, we had three kids, but whatever it was that led him to change his mind, he'd been building up. Um, and it had nothing to do with the fact of how we got on. We weren't fighters. We didn't have all these underlying issues. It was, it was, he just wanted to change his life. And so from my point of view, it was, it was totally devastating because I knew nothing about it. And so by the time I found out about it, he'd up, he'd made up his mind. So he didn't tell me years earlier, I'm not feeling the love. I'm, you know, I, I think we're in trouble or anything like that. So by the time he told me, he was gone. And so that shock wave for me is probably the most devastating thing that's happened in my life, which makes me pretty lucky because a lot of people have a lot worse things going in their lives than that. So, you know, I don't want any sympathy from this story. It's more about just telling the story of, of how divorce can shape someone and how it can devastate your life and how the grief is the same as death when it's in that situation. So, yeah, so my life had to change and that was, it was very, it was very scary and I felt very vulnerable and I felt very, I felt very scared. Yeah. Well, we did discuss this off air before we started recording, mm. but I just want to, I want to be very mindful and to make it very clear to everyone listening that, that we're here just to discuss your experience and not that of your husband or to make any judgments. And yeah, we're purely discussing and learning from your experience today because you are, we're so lucky that you are being so generous with your time and your, so it's been so candid with your story. So yeah, I just wanted to, to make that clear in case the next comment, you know, sounds like a dick, but essentially from my understanding, it's like the rug was pulled out from underneath you. And what we're going to discuss now is how you kind of picked yourself back up and dusted yourself off. And it sounds very simple when you say it in that way, but this is something that people can have the rug pulled out from underneath them in all sorts of different ways and shapes in life. And the way you've done it is very inspiring. I suppose before you can get to that point, though, where where you are today, there's a lot that you're going through. What were those first few months like? Oh, they were fucked. Can I swear on here? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I like swearing. I swear a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, they were fucked. I can't put it any other way. It was it was just um, it was just devastation. You know, it's loss, it's fear, it's I'm going to cry. I think about it, but it was just. It's just really devastating. Yeah. Um, I just, I still get upset, which is really fucking annoying. <laughs> no, I think it was, um, it was a sense of loss of not just my husband, who was gone quite quickly, even though he, he didn't die, he was still there. Um, it was a loss of everything that we, we had together as well. Um, it's just, it was such a shock for me that it was just, um, devastation. And I think I was just really scared. You know, not only did I lose my husband, but I lost my farm, my community, a lot of my animals. Like it was just, it's a, I mean, I'm not even going to pretend like I know or understand. I've not been not experienced anything close to that. You spoke in your episode on Courage Unraveled about this concept of the difference between a rural divorce and and a city divorce. And I think that's kind of what you're, you've just been alluding to. Can you explain to us like what your thoughts are on that and what that looks like? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think the difference is, and, and this is something, you know, that is when you get divorced and you're not rural, when, you, when you're in suburbia and you get divorced, you can move close to each other. I mean, you, you know, you can lose your family home, you can lose a lot of assets, you can do those things, but your kids can still go to the same schools, they can still... Um, they can still live in the family home in, in a lot of instances, not all of them. Uh, they don't move away from their friends. You don't have to give up your, your pets. Um, there's just all of those things that I had to give up that garden that I was so in love with. Um, when you're in that environment and you have to leave it, you don't get to make any decisions. And I think that's what's really hard is when one person makes all the decisions Okay, now this is nothing against Mike's husband. I love him dearly. He's a beautiful person and he's a great dad. But he made all these decisions to change his life and it affected so many people. And no one else gets a say in that. And that's that can be really hard to deal with, yeah. And in the city, I think you can kind of manage it to live near each other, have the kids weak about, whatever it is. So when I left the farm, I could have moved into town but that would have killed me. I couldn't have lived in town knowing that he's just out there. You know, he ended up selling the farm, which he was always going to do. That was, I mean, when he told me he was leaving me, it wasn't just me. He was wanting to get out of farming, all of it. Didn't want to work family. Didn't, you know, he just wanted to change his whole life. So there was a lot more to it than just our marriage. But, um, but you know, so, and I, I don't, blame him for that like if he felt he needed to do that to change his life to make him happy then who am I to to tell him no um but the problem with these situations is one person has to make these decisions if they want to change their life and it affects just so many people um and and you know it just makes it really hard really hard I think you're spot on with this idea of how different a rural divorce and an urban divorces and not to say that one is easier than the other or you know like it's not comparing them in that way but when you live together but where you live is tied to your your life and your income and your business and and it's everything's just so intertwined which when it's going good like that's something that can make farming like being a, a farming family like that's one of the best sides of it you know one of the, but when things don't go to plan like it just cr- creates I imagine so much more layers of things to work through and pain yeah I mean I definitely wasn't ready to leave I wanted to bring my kids up in the country um and you know there was lots I wanted to do in the future and my husband was part of that and so it, it was, yeah, it was like a death, you know, if, and I know, you know, I sort of thought about it and I thought, what if he actually had died? You know, his father probably would have sold the farm anyway. Um, but it's a different situation and, and you still lose all that stuff. But then I don't know, maybe I would have stayed somewhere near Williams if, if it was that situation. It's, 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 it's different when they're still alive and it's like they've died. You grieve like they're dead. And they come, and I remember this one incident, and this is nothing against him, but he came and got the kids because I was still in the house for a little while um, when we first split up um, until I moved. And he came and got the kids to take them for the weekend and I just watched my whole family drive out the driveway. And for the first time ever, I was just in that homestead on my own, you know, for the whole weekend with no kids, no husband, 
no, you know. And I was just like, this is the weirdest fucking thing ever. And it's like when, when someone, I think for me, it feels like when they, when you get divorced in that situation, it's like a ghost, you know, like it's like you grieve like they're dead, but they're still alive. It's like that ghost just comes and haunts you. And that took me probably about four years to deal with. Um, I'm fine now, but, um, but it, I might not sound fine, but I am fine. But, um, it's, you know, it took me about four years to, to cope with that. Yeah. Is it this idea of the difference between if somebody, if, if this situation comes about because, for example, say somebody passes away versus a divorce, mm. is it a different level of, closure or do you have to approach it in a whole different way because if somebody passes away and you all these decisions are kind of forced upon you it's like listen this has happened there's nothing I can do I just have to move on whereas when it's a divorce I imagine just reflecting on some of my own relationships you may think well like there's not that same level of closure because you're like you can still think well what if and what if I and then you can kind of go down that rabbit hole of well, what if I'd done this different or what if, you know, where, where, where was the start of the, where was the beginning of the end? And, and I guess get lost in kind of focusing on that yes. rather than, whereas when the person's dead and you're like, well, I've got no choice but to move on. Like, and it's, and it, you know, and you just move on. Whereas I suppose with divorce, yeah, you can wonder, like get, get lost down that. You can get very lost because there's a lot of anger. So you get a lot of support. I had so much beautiful support, but everyone's angry. And when someone dies, everyone's angry, but they're remembering this beautiful person. But it's a different type of anger. It's an anger that's angry because someone's died. Whereas when you get divorced, people are angry at the other person. Um, and so that makes it really hard because you get lots of support, but they're really angry. They're really angry. So many people were so angry at my ex-husband, which made it really hard for me because I was not only dealing with my own grief, but I was dealing with my friends and family supporting me, but being angry at him, you know, and then it's like, there is that what if. I was like, where did we go wrong? Like I remember writing a form out in, um, I was getting, I don't know, it was a chiropractor or something, and, you know, they've got this list of questions and it was, and one of them was something, are you happy in your relationship or something, which I thought was a weird thing, but it's obviously all to do with whatever's going on inside your body. And I was like, and I, as I ticked yes, I remember thinking, I'm so lucky because, I knew of a few marriages that were starting to get a bit rocky and I was like, I'm so lucky that my husband and I get on so well. And that's what I was thinking. And it was only like three months later that he he pulled the pin on me. So it was, you know, it was just, it was, I had a lot of stuff just going on in my head that was like really, really like, well, how, why? I had like 4,000 questions of how and why. And he couldn't really answer any of them because all his answers were just, normal, boring, generic shit. It was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, what do you mean I didn't do that well enough or you thought I was going to be this or you – like, I didn't even know that. Like, it was just – there was no underlying reason. And I've learnt now, especially since all my coaching training, there doesn't have to be an underlying reason. People do what they do for their own reasons and they don't even know why sometimes. So, you know, when someone makes that decision like he made – at the time, he thought that was what was going to make him better or happier or whatever he wanted. But it's something that you can't change. You can't change people. Um, you can only help people. And, um, yeah, it's, I suppose it is. It's, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Are you also, which I find really interesting, 
and maybe I just want to ask you to to tell me a little bit more about is this idea of when somebody um you know your support network kind of being angry versus you mentioned just off air before you had a friend that passed away recently and, and it was a really different response and like that and I just found that really fascinating yeah so when someone passes away there's a lot more there's anger obviously a lot of anger especially when it's cancer but the the i suppose there's a lot of sympathy and a lot of um a lot of support that continues like everyone rallies around the person who's lost someone um and i got a lot of people rallying around me i didn't i'm not saying i didn't but it's a different type of rally and i really noticed this when i lost my friend um the difference between divorce and death um so for some people getting divorced, it's like a death. For other people getting divorced, it's a mutual thing and it's completely different. So what I want to explain to the audience here is that if you've got a friend or someone going through a divorce, the best way to support them is not to be angry at their partner, ex-partner, is more to um, to try and just help your friend where they're at because they need that support just like someone who's lost a partner to death needs the support. Um, it's, it's a different kind of support, but it's, but bringing anger and, um, all of those bad feelings to the party doesn't help anyone. Um, including the people bringing the anger, you know, it's not, we all have a right to feel angry and everyone feels angry. That's normal human nature. But when you try and take it out on someone and, and get, really upset and get um, nasty about them it doesn't help the person that you're supporting so I think my advice to people out there is support someone with without banging on about their ex and saying what a horrible person they are for doing what they've done because it doesn't help the person going through it and it doesn't help the ex either Um, and it's and it doesn't help the person saying it you know you don't want to be a mean person yeah Um, so I think yeah no one's ever mean about someone who's died yeah. You know, no yeah. one's ever mean about someone who's died. Everyone's, it's all loving and it's beautiful memories. And I think that's the saddest part about a divorce in this situation is it's almost like you've got to get rid of all your beautiful memories with that person because you have to move on from them. Whereas mm-hmm. when you, it's just a different grief. It's, it's like the same grief, but it's different and it's hard to explain, but it's, I hope that little yeah, bit I, there explain something. It's yeah. definitely twigged something in my mind that I hope going forward I'll be mindful of when I if and when I'm in that situation. I can see um I mean the reason for divorces like they're so varied. So every situation is different and you know sometimes like you said it's mutual and other times maybe one party's kind of done something not so great and and when I I feel like what you're saying is you're not trying to tell someone to not be angry. Um it's it's you can still validate them and their anger, but to a level, and then your support is kind of channeled into helping them move forward, rather than dwelling on it and just kind of yep. just ruminating in it. And and then, like you said, it's especially if perhaps whatever's happened happens towards the end of the marriage. So, say in your example, you had a great marriage, and towards the end, your partner wasn't feeling, you know 
whatever and there was you know a lack of communication which is I suppose not ideal but is what it is do you I was um, saying throw the baby out with the bathwater like just because towards the end things weren't done uh, you know ideally or whatever do you kind of write off the other whole relationship that you've had like whereas I think that that can happen because we can get so Again, look at me talking like a relationship expert. Everybody yeah. knows I'm turning You're doing like good. Single. You're doing great. I know. I listen to enough of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, you can get so caught up in those final moments or the, or the, say if it's a single act or a series of acts or whatever, that it does kind of just taint the rest of the whole. It does. Relationship. Yeah. And, and we had a fabulous time together. This is the thing. Like, you know, I've still got, I've made up a photo book for my kids and it's of us when they were little, of us together and on the farm. So the kids have always got that. And a lot of people say to me, oh, that's a really nice thing to do. Oh, yeah, that's a nice thing to do. But why did you put your ex-husband in it? It's like because he's their father. Yeah. He, you know, he's, I, I want them to look at that and see that mum and dad were together and happy. And we had, we had such fun together, my ex-husband and I. We had a ball. You know, we had a great life. So I'll always remember that for what it is. And whatever's happened, I can't control. And it's, it is what it is. And so it's that saying, it is what it is and it will be what it will be. Does that yeah, make sense? I think it's, so. And I, yeah. again, relationship expert over yep, here. Yep. I feel like divorce, it brings out the worst in you because it's oh, not it just a relationship that you're, that is ending. Like that's not all that's going on. It's all the expectations and plans and everything that you had. I, I think either party that you're also dealing with at the same time, like the loss of that or the cessation yeah. of that. So oh, yeah. it's not like, Oh, um, I'll make. I don't know, cheated on me or my wife cheated on me, you know, like, and that was a shit thing and now we're over and that, like, you've just got to deal with that in itself. But you're like, but I also had plans for our life and our this and our that. And like, you've kind of like, you've got all these other things going on. I'm just wondering you, so you're so independent as a person. And then this is just an assumption on, on my behalf, but I know being in a relationship is very much a team, a team yeah. thing. Um, and there's some level of codependency there that even if you're the most independent person beforehand, were you able to kind of slip back into being independent and on your own easy or once you kind of had that time as a team, was that a big adjustment as well? It was a big adjustment. Um, it was a big adjustment, um, although he did look after me well financially, like, you know, I wasn't without money. I, I was very scared because I hadn't, I didn't have a job. I was a mum on a farm and I was farming and that was my job to be part of the farm business and to, you know, feed the people and look after the kids and work the sheep or whatever it was. So I, I didn't have any control over my own money because it was, it was their money. And so when we broke up, luckily they were very nice people and my ex-husband did look after me well financially, but he, um, it was very scary because I was like, what am I going to do? I don't have a degree. I don't have, um, you know, something, I'm not a lawyer or an accountant or something, suddenly go and earn a hundred grand a year on my own. I, I, I was like, what the hell am I going to do? How am I going to survive? How am I going to look after my kids full-time parenting and work full-time? And all these things are running through my head. How am I going to cope with being in suburbia and having this bloody ugly green fence around my house that, <laughs> you know, it's like, how am I going to cope with that stuff? So I think the independent part was just, it's like going, well, I have to go and do something. So I got a job, you know, and I have to go and cover the fence because it's with trees because I don't like it. So, you know, you just have to do these things. You just have to do them. 
How do you think, though, your time on stations and living and working in isolated parts of Australia played into your your response and what you did post the divorce? I just think it, um, that upbringing gives you a lot of resilience that you don't realise you have. Every kid that grows up in the bush is resilient. You know, I used to be riding my horse out in the middle of nowhere, like four hours from home on my own. You know, I knew where I was. The horse always knew how to get home if I didn't. So it was – and mum and dad were like, we'll see you at dinner time. It was – that independence, I think, comes comes with that, um, with that upbringing. Like my friends whose kids are growing up on stations now, like they're so independent. Those kids, they all can go off and do whatever and – and then they get the the um, extra experience of going to boarding school, which gives them all those contacts and all of that other all those other experiences and seeing the world in a different way. And I think those two experiences together for me have have shaped me because when you're at boarding school, you're not with your parents, you're with your friends, and you learn everything with your friends, and you have to do your own washing, and you you know there's things you become dependent. So when you leave school. You, you left, I left home when I was in year seven, you know, and so my younger brother left home when he was in year five because he was such a little shit that <laughs> mum had to send him early because <laughs> all he wanted to do was go to Guildford and play cricket <laughs> and football because his brother and sister had gone. So he went to boarding school in year five and I think you just, you don't rely on your mum and dad to be home, you know, you can, so it's easy to go off and do something else. I was already independent. So when I moved here to Bustleton, I didn't have any support here. I had one girlfriend here and an auntie that lives in Downsborough. But I didn't have – like all my family were in Perth and most of my friends were either on farms or in Perth. So everyone says, why did you move to Bustleton? You should have moved to Perth near your mum and dad. I was like, Bustleton gives me a better lifestyle. So I came down here with three children without any family support. And so my mum was like, you need to come to Perth so I can help you with the kids. But I was like, I'll be fine with the kids. You know, when I need you for a weekend or whatever, you can come down, you know, and they do. So I think, I think that independence is, is I'm used to going to different places and going, I'm going to go there now. Like when I went to Marcus Oldham, like I didn't know anyone at Marcus Oldham and I was an older student. I was 26. All those boys there were like 18. So it was, I just was like, well, I'm going to do it. Like I'm not scared of going somewhere new and doing something different or doing it on my own. And I think that stems from being brought up the way I was brought up on the station and then going to boarding school as well. You're obviously um, in a very different place today. It is, is it almost about 10 years down the Yeah, track? yeah, it is nearly 10 years. Wow. <laughs> so long, I can't believe I cried. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, I think that was really special that you are, that, well, not that you did it on cue, but that you, that it happened in this recording. Cause you said when you first got emotional and, and cried a, earlier on that, that hasn't happened yeah. usually when you speak about this, but to show that it's still there and you, you know, doesn't matter how far down the track that it, it grief isn't something that you, uh, people say the same with grief or well, any, I think any kind of grief, but particularly around death, like, Oh, blah, 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 move on, move on. And I heard something, I think last year about like, no, you never move on, but you move forward. And That's you kind right. of still have a bit of it with you. Like there's no, yeah. there's no overcoming it and moving on. It's not like, you know, you've got a cold and then you, I don't know, heal from the cold, get better and move on. And the cold's done and in the past and you don't have that. It's not yep. there in you anymore. Grief is different. Grief like is you different. Don't, 
grief is always there. It's always there. So people who have lost their children, like they, then you never get over that ever. So, um, a divorce, you can get over better, you know, than your children, obviously, but, or, you know, a death of a, of a husband or someone you can get over easier than, than a child. Um, but it's, but you're still never over it. You know, that person was a big part of your life. You had children with that person. I think anyone who you haven't had children with, you can kind of, you know, you can put them to bed a bit. But when you've got children together, you still have each other in well, each other's lives. Constant reminder. Yep. Um, and there's this, there's this thing about, I always like to look forward and I love to live day by day. Like I love, I get up in the morning and I'm like, today is another day. Like, how lucky am I to be alive and how great is it? And, you know, how can I better myself? That's how I see my days. And what can I do today that's going to be worthwhile for me or for others or in general? And, and I don't forget the past, but I don't dwell on it anymore. I see the future as you've got to look forward and, and enjoy the life you've got, you know, and you can't keep dwelling on the past and being angry about the past and bringing up the past, but it's still there and it's a part of you and it's shaped you. I mean, that divorce has turned me into the person I am today. You know, it's it's the worst and best thing that's ever happened to me. Just hearing you say that, though, just makes me think about when I asked you with uh, right at the beginning with your parents selling the station and you're yeah. like, you know, I you just got to, you know, it was out of my control, it happened and I just had to, you know, move on. Like yeah. not probably what I would have picked, but I just had to move on. Well, I was a and teenager. obviously, yeah. yeah. But just that, I feel like you've probably had that mindset for a while, though, whether or not you realize it, that you just, you know, okay, something's happened. I've just got to yeah. keep moving forward. Yep. How did you, like, when was the turning point and how did you go from that period in your life that was change and grief to where you are today? Well, I suppose it was, it's, a, it's an evolving turning point. It wasn't one turning point. It was an, an evolution of shit that was happening, I suppose. So it was, you know, when I actually left the farm, it was almost like a relief because I had that time to grieve for the farm and then go, well, now I'm leaving here. And I didn't want to leave, but it wasn't the same. My husband wasn't coming home, you know. I could see him at the sheds and then he'd go and stay up the road at another house. I mean, fuck, it was awful. So so it was um, one of those things that was just all the little things put together. I think once I moved here and I was renting a house around the corner from where I am now and I sat in this house and I bawled my eyes out because I was like, I do not want to live in Legoland. I love to call it Legoland, <laughs> you know, a housing estate in a town, okay? And so what I did was every day I would go, well, what positive thing is there today in my life? Instead of going, my life's fucked, poor me. Instead I was like, well, what positive thing can I do today? What can I do that's going to make my life better? So is it just a real day-by-day day rather than like, yeah, okay, this has happened and oh, it's different from here on out. Like it sounds like it's – how do you, I guess, though, in that, so you're saying like it's a day-by-day day, um, – Daily grind, but yeah, positivity um, coming into it every day. <laughs> trans – trans, not transmission, trans – Transformation? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Completely lost my word there. Yeah. But so it's just, it's day-by-day, day, things are changing. But I feel like on the flip side of that, it could be very easy to fall into – you come here, you settle into life, and then you just kind of, um, I don't know, everything just kind of plateaus and you've, you're still taking life day by day, but nothing ever really changes. So what's, what's the key there to actually changing your life and really like you've made the most of this 
opportunity if we're if we're going to yeah. frame it that way rather than you've just come here and you know 10 years later you're just like oh yeah still just here like I feel like because it could go either I do way. feel like I'm in limbo still believe it or not I feel like I'm a little bit in limbo like I can't believe when people say oh I've only been here and I go oh nine years or whatever I'm like wow I still feel like I'm in limbo because this isn't like the house I want to live in this isn't the you know, I, I'm still not where I want to be and that takes time and it takes building. So my dreams, uh, I just keep working towards them. And so what I did when I moved here and I'm still a long way off and I'm, and in that plateau thing, there is a bit of plateauing in there where I was just working the daily grind and going, okay, this is not going to get me anywhere. But in that, I was also doing a lot of, cause I started researching relationships. I started researching health stuff because I've always been a bit of a, health nut, love nutrition, love cooking, love food. And I've always loved exercise. So I was like, well, what can I do here? Started joining, I joined a swimming club. You know, what, what can I do that's going to make me feel good? Right. Take my horse to the beach and ride on the beach. Don't worry about competitions and chasing cows or any of that stuff. Just, just go and have fun. And, you know, there's so many beautiful trails and there's the Cape to Cape track and there's, there's so much to do here. And, you know, you can go supboarding, you can surfing, whatever you want to do. And, so I was just in that mindset of do what makes me feel good and work towards my goals. And I'm really slow at working towards my goals. I wish I was better at it and faster at it. Um, so, you know, when you're trying to deal with children, because they're very busy as well, I've found that, you know, sometimes days would just go by and all I've done is my daily grind job and and chase my children and I haven't done worked on my business and I haven't worked – towards my goals or whatever. So it is a, a to and a fro. It's like a, you know, some weeks I'm really good at it, some weeks I'm really bad at it. When just to be like you talk about to be so motivated to go and um do your exercise and go like you said, take your horse to the beach for a ride, go back and study, what are the things that you found really important for you? And also like or and to have goals. Like I know sitting right in the room with us right now yes, is is, is, a, is a vision board with goals on it. Like, is it? I know I'm sure it's different for everyone, but for you, was it about like explicitly writing or saying something down, and that kind of makes it a reality, rather than just kind of having an idea in your mind and then realizing in three years' time you've never actually done anything. Whereas yep. if you've got it written up on the fridge, it's different. Like, I've I've had to train myself to write things down, so I've never been good at writing things down. Um, and then through my divorce, I used to write my ex-husband letters. If I go back on my computer now, I'll probably cringe at every one of them. But I used to write these letters. I never sent them because I had to get it out. And it's the same with like my vision board. If I can see that every day, it's going to promote me to actually do some work on my business, to actually work towards my goals. And I see it as in, I don't want to be stuck in Lego land for the next 20 years and still working for a $28 an hour job, you know, doing whatever. It's, I want to, I want to be somewhere. I want to do something with my life that means something. And since I started coaching and I see the change in my clients, that gives me more motivation because I see them change. And that's so gratifying for me. When I see someone go from feeling like shit to feeling fabulous and I've helped them on that journey, I just think, why would I want to do anything else? You know, it's, and it gives me the motivation to keep going. And I think exercise gives me motivation because if I exercise, I have energy. I've always been a high energy person. You speak to my friends. I'm always that high energy one that's the last to leave the party. So I think that's, that comes naturally to me, but it's probably stemmed from that upbringing of always being physical as well. And I eat well. 
and food can make a big difference into how you feel. Um, and that's something else that I teach, you know, teach my clients. So I suppose it's, um, my how and my why is, is I just, I went from, I suppose, feeling secure and loved and like, like everything was going to be okay on the farm because we had each other and the business and the farm and the kids and the, to being on my own to going, I have to make something of myself. And if I don't do the work, nothing's going to change. So I have to do it. I don't know. I think it comes down to the life that you've led, the life that you've got, you know, it, and, and making those changes. Like if you're not happy with the way you are and the way you feel, then you need to do something about it because no one else can do it for you. Yeah. And, I and get, yeah, that's probably my, my thing is that no one else is going to do it for you. You can't rely on your partner to make you happy. You have to rely on yourself to make you happy. In your episode on Courage Unraveled, there's something you said that really has stuck in my mind and it was about the this transition from, I guess, life before to life after, is that you said, like, I, I figured it out on my own. Like, I had to. I just – I didn't have anyone else. Like, I just had to figure it out on my own. And that made me really – think of your time on stations, particularly as a kid, what can you tell me about that? Well, it's a funny question for me because I I never thought about my childhood as coming into it at the time. But when I think back, if you look back at all the times when you're a kid on a station that you were on your own, you know, you'd be sent out to do a meal run at the age of 12 or whatever and off you'd go on the motorbike and you'd be off there doing a meal run on your own. Or, you know, I'd be on my horse on my own. So if something went wrong, you had to figure it out on your own. And I remember I had a horse riding accident. I don't know if this has really got anything to do with it, but I, my horse and I were just cantering along and we actually ran into the fence, like, you know, how we had those clear wire fences. And we we're going through the creek and obviously just got too close. I didn't see it in time, whatever. She tried to jump it. We both fell over the fence. And her head came up and my head went down. So I broke my jaws, snapped both my mandibles and snapped here. And I also broke my arm and my right arm and just damaged my right knee. And I don't know how long I was unconscious for, but I got up. The horse was standing there next to me. And I was like, I remember, I remember this really clearly. So I was just thinking, Oh, oh no, I've fallen off. Oh, my arm's broken. Okay, well, I can't get on my horse. I'll just have to walk home. And I was two Ks, and obviously I was I'd, I had concussion, um, and there was a cocky gate. And so I just remember going, right, I've got to open the cocky gate. So I opened it, and I was just like, Dad won't mind if I leave it open because <laughs> obviously I wasn't going to be able to close it. He's not going to get angry at me because this is a good reason. And I walked the two Ks home with my horse, not realising that my whole head was like a balloon and that I was bleeding um, in my jaw and my mum's a nurse and we, we, um, I, I remember walking up past the shearing shed up towards the house and mum was hanging out clothes on the clothesline. She saw me walking and she yelled out, what'd you do? Fall off your horse. <laughs> and I went, yes. And then as I got closer, she looked at me and she was like, oh no. Next minute I was on the flying doctor plane to Perth and they thought, I was going unconscious in the plane and I think they thought they were losing me because they were worried about blood loss and whatever. And my head was literally like a balloon and I didn't know my head was like a balloon. I knew I'd broken my jaw, but, and so anyway, that was, you know, and, but it's that when I fell off the horse and I know shock takes over and all those things, but you've just got to figure it out. You can't just sit there and hope someone's going to find you. 
So maybe that sort of stuff leads, you know, all those little experiences you have as a kid of being on your own out in the middle of nowhere leads you to making decisions and going, well, I have to figure this out. I just have to figure it out. I had to figure out how to open the cocky gate with one hand and the horse and the, you know, while I was concussed. So I think those are the things that just add up, I suppose. And then when you get to this point, I was like, I have to figure this out. Like, I need to stay fit. I need to stay healthy and look after my children. I'm now a single mum, you know, and I researched. I got on the computer and I researched and I cried a lot and I ate really well and I exercised and I laughed with my friends and I just figured it out. I suppose that's what I did. And I did what I loved when I could to make me feel good. I want to ask you a little bit about your coaching now because it's just such a, um, I just don't know, I guess if anyone, well, first of all, I didn't even know that. So your lifestyle and divorce, like two, so you're not just for divorce, like I started for non-divorced people yeah. can see you as well. Yeah. I didn't know that that existed, the, like a divorce coach, but also to think, what And what I love about this podcast is showing how diverse and dynamic people that have worked on cattle stations are. And it's not like once a cowgirl, always a cowgirl. Oh, and I am still a cowgirl. cowgirl yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, that that's all you can do. You can't do yeah. anything aside from work from with cows or, or something farmy and, you know, like to show how yeah diverse you are and, and how you've really, um, to, is that, I feel like this has been a big thing in, um, COVID times, but pivoted. Yes, you've, you've I've definitely pivoted. Got your completely different lifestyle. Yeah. Yep. Netball bib on, and you are pivoting around. Yep. Yeah. What What does it involve? So coaching. This is this hard thing in America. Coaches coaching is becoming quite big, and I studied through an American coaching institute, and um, and coaching over there is becoming the new. I suppose you know you get a personal trainer. You know. Now people are just getting coaches instead of personal trainers or that, you know, that personal trainers are becoming coaches as well. But in Australia, coaching is still quite unknown, I, th- I feel. People and Australians being typical Aussies, I love us, but we don't love spending money on ourselves. We love spending money on things, beer, you know, whatever, um, handbags, whatever, you know, I, I've, I've had clients that want to be coached, but then they go, oh, I can't really afford it. Yet they get their nails done every two weeks for seventy dollars a a thing or whatever. It's like really, you know. So it's um, it's just it's what you prioritize. And if you're going to prioritize your health and your well being, and and you're struggling to do it on your own, that is where a health or a life coach can come in. Now, I started off just as a health coach because I was really into the health and fitness and whatever. But what I found when I was coaching my clients is it all revolved around their life. And then some of them were going through divorce or some were in me because they were divorced and they're like, oh, but you've been divorced, so I'd, I'd like you to help me. And so then I was like, why aren't I divorce coaching as well? So now I'm just like, just call me coach because it's it's basically life coaching and I'll do divorce and, and couples coaching as well. So I can I can do, you know, if couples are willing to work together, I can help them as well. But But it's life coaching, but it's about your health because without your health, you haven't got your life. As my nana says, your health is your wealth. It is. It is your wealth. And and what I found is a lot of people aren't looking after themselves because of the of the um the things that are going on in their life. It's well, it's the first thing you let go of. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it, it like yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because there's no point in saying if you let's say we work together and you're like, okay, Steph, like like you've got to go do this exercise and eat this thing. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I want to do it. But if there's something, say, 
a really bad work environment or a shitty relationship or something like until it, it's like, um, you know, the, the bucket with the holes, like all different holes at different heights and the water coming out. You can't plug the, the hole. You can plug the holes up the top, but water's still going to leak out the bottom. You've kind of got to start at the bottom and work your way up. And until, yeah, you can, things will only get so much traction until I suppose like, Every other things are sorted. Like that's correct. Like a exercise and diet plan right now would only go so far if that's all we worked on with me. Like we'd probably have pretty limited impact because yep. I'm not going to stick with it with where I'm at in my life. So, yep. so what what I do is I really help with the subconscious side. So we work on the whys and we keep digging until we find the reason why you might be behaving in a certain way, and then. No one is worth coaching until they want to be coached. Like, I can't help you if you don't, if you're not ready to be helped. So what I say to people when I speak to them when they're not sure if they want to be coached, I say, are you ready? Because I can give you all the information in the world. I can give you all the tips. I can give you all the things you, you might want to do. But at the end of the day, you need to want to do them. So I always leave in my coaching, I always leave the decision up to the client. So I don't say you have to eat this, this and this and you have to exercise five times a week and this is the program. I say, what do you want to do? And what do you want to cut out in your life? And why? And 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 how are you going to change that? And so that, that person can sit there and go, oh, yeah, well, I really don't like my job. Well, what can you do instead? I don't know. I've never done anything else. Okay, well, how can you how can you change that? What can you do? Do you want to go study something? Like what what do you want to do? You know, and sometimes that's all people need is permission. Um, other, other times they need you to be on their ass every week going, come on, get to it, giddy up, you know, because they need that. That's how they want to be coached. And others just need permission or need you to listen to them and then help them through whatever it is they're going through. And then they can make the changes. And I suppose from my perspective, like just an objective third party that is, has, you know, got no vested interest, which way or the other. Cause it's, I mean, it's still important to have your friends and family as a support network, but somebody that's, yeah, independent and also with those skills though. That's why I, I always say like, yeah, it's, you know, reach out to a mate or family or whatever if you need help. But at some point you still have to go and see a professional because they've got the skills. Like you can definitely reach out to a friend and, and, you know, you don't have to go straight to a psychologist or whatever saying like this yeah. is to do with mental health, but having someone that's got the skills and the training, it will also make a difference. So I, I feel Definitely. like that's kind of the difference between sitting out and making, nutting out a plan with your friends, which I do plenty, but yep. then, you know, coming and seeing a coach is that you've got those skills as well that you bring to the table. And I think the biggest one is not judging. I will never judge anyone on on their body, on the way they look, on the way they feel, on what their partner's done to them, on what they do to themselves. I just listen to them and and help them. And I say to them, I will not judge you. You can tell me everything because, one, it's confidential, and, two, I'm not going to judge you. Like whatever's led you to put on the weight, say, for someone who's who's wanting to lose weight, let's find out why. You know, let's not – judge you on the fact that you've put on weight let's find out why you've put on the weight and let's see if we can psychologically change that so that you can then open yourself up to losing the weight and some people are successful some people are still very stuck and you know like it's different for everybody um and I think in general and what I learned from 
being coached because obviously I got coached while I was doing the course that you had to be coached and it's the best thing I ever did. Paying to be coached and paying for that course I did was the best thing I've ever done in my life because it has changed me internally. It has made me realise how powerful I can be and how powerful everyone can be and how powerful just listening to someone and being kind can be and not judging people, you know. You know, we all judge people. And we don't even realize we're doing it. And I just don't anymore. And I'll go out with my friends and I'll start judging someone and I, I suddenly start seeing what they're seeing. Then I go, hang on, Libby. There's a reason that person's wearing that or doing that or whatever. Like, don't judge them. And I don't. And then, and, and then I'll go and talk to them, you know, like it's, it's, I just, yeah, it's, it, you start seeing things very differently once, once you've learned that. And the self help stuff, you know, is I, I would say to everyone, read a self help book. It is actually good for you. What are your? I'm, I'm really curious now. What are your dreams now? I mean, we spoke earlier on. You know, the, yeah. you had the the kids on the farm and the farming business and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What What does today's dreams look like? Oh God, they're all over the place. There's my my vision board. I want to buy a farm. So there's there's number one. So I can have you know my horses in my backyard and you know a couple of cows and sheep running around or whatever and a couple more dogs etc. One of the things I've always wanted to do is a recipe book and I'm struggling, I will admit, I'm really struggling to get my head around doing a recipe book. I've got quite a few recipes written down and all of that but I'm struggling to actually figure out how I'm going to do it and pay for it and sell it and and just do it basically with all the photography and everything but I've got in my mind what I want to do. I'm hoping before I die that will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Yeah. So anyway, um, I still want to do more travel. And at the moment, I'm working on a relationship program, which I haven't got very far with, but I want to, I want to do a relationship program that anyone can, can do. And I need to see some good marketing people to help me with that. So, um, I'm working on that, but my dreams are just to live life to the fullest. That is my dream now is to live every day happy. And when I say happy, I don't mean happy because that's not realistic. I mean fulfilled. Like there's always going to be sadness. There's always going to be shit days. There's always going to be days where, you know, things go wrong. And so I think for me, it's just about making the most and letting go of anything that goes wrong and acknowledging the way I feel and then moving on and going, well, how do I want to feel? And then doing something that makes me feel how I want to feel. And if I can live my life like that and I get to do more travel and hang out with my friends and see my children grow up and then, hey, what more is there? Like that's like, that's living, you know, love it. So from where I'm sitting, I suppose. You've come a long way since the the divorce and developed so much as a person. And I don't think, I suppose, I, I imagine I'm making a huge assumption here that like you wouldn't trade like who you are today for anything else. Like, is that right? Like, No you, way. Yeah. No, okay, I cool. wouldn't. I love who I am now. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I, I was like, that's a pretty big <laughs> assumption to make. I suppose though the thing is if you could be this person without having gone all through those things or or just that particular thing, like maybe yep. if you could swap it out for another life event that's going to mm. bring you to this point, maybe you would. But, but obviously you can't. And I'm, I think everyone, there's an opportunity for anyone to get to the point where you're at or their own version of it without having to go through something massive. Oh, yeah. What would you – if you could go back in time and tell your younger self something, like what would you tell her to try and, I guess, get her to this point without having to live it? I think what I would tell her is 
to stay true to my dreams and follow them because there was a lot of deterrent there of I really wanted to go to America and work with top horse trainers and or Canada or somewhere, you know, when I first left school and it was another thing I wanted to do and my bloody family again. I love them dearly. But, you know, I kept getting told to get a real job and don't go and do that and don't work with horses. There's no money in it and all this sort of stuff. And and I didn't have the confidence. And, you know, you grow confidence. Confidence comes with experience. And so I think if I, I, I would say follow your dreams, stay true to what you want to do, and I say that to everyone now, like don't let go of it. Um, and if people do tell you that's okay, they're only there to help you, but don't let anyone stop you. And I think that's what I would tell my younger self because I think my life would be quite different. I mean, maybe not any better, obviously, but very different if I had really stuck to my guns on what I wanted to do instead of doing something because I thought I needed to because that's what everyone else told me to do. From a coaching point of view, it is, I would say to someone, um, I read a book called The Slight Edge. Um, Someone Olson. Anyway, it's probably the best self-help book I've read that really resonated with me. Um, and the other one is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That's really good as well. If you've read that, you'll be smart. Yeah, it's so good. Anyway, um, and it's Jeff Olson. And what I, what I learned from that book is you can, your path can be either, you can choose a path up or you can choose a path down by the actions that you take. So when I was younger, I probably didn't choose the path up enough. You know, I, I, I took the easy way out or I, I didn't have the confidence to do what I wanted to do, etc. Whereas now what I would say to myself is, okay, you've got two choices. You can have that choice or that choice. Which one is going to improve your life? And that would be what I would say to that younger person. And that's from reading that book. It's a really good book. And for my final question, yes. looking back on your life so far, yep. what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Oh my God, there's just so many takeaway lessons, but I would say the, um, the biggest one is not to judge and to always be kind. And yeah, to follow those dreams, to, to make sure that you, you look after yourself. I think looking after yourself is, there's not enough about self love. You know, people think that self love is something selfish and it's not. It's self care and it makes you a better person which makes you a better person for everybody else. And I think that is really important because there's so many people out there, men and women, but mainly women who I've coached, that just about everyone I coach doesn't love themselves. They hate their bodies. They hate their, they hate the way they are or they don't have the confidence. They think the husband's going to run off with someone else because they're ugly. It's like, hello, he married you. You're not ugly. No one's ugly. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. Just take the time to look after yourself and have confidence that you're as good as the next person. That's probably the biggest lesson, that everyone is good. Everyone has got something there that is special. doesn't matter who you are. 